pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. This is the one where we encourage teaching the teacher, and we try to show you behind the curtain. So, quick, close your eyes. So, Pick, what are we going to talk about today? I have no idea. We just had graduation. I'm a little befuddled. Graduation is one of those times of year where you've got a bunch of friends that you've known for three and four years who are leaving. That is a difficult time. It's a difficult time because as teachers, we put an immense amount of effort into them. But it's also really great because all of these people are going to go out and treat actual patients. And it's got this huge force multiplier. And I feel good that if they make one decision that helps someone better and I help make the decision, then I'm like Superman. I like the idea of force multiplier. So what we should be doing is try to teach people to teach so that all these people go out in the world and they tell two friends and they tell two friends. Trying to come up with that commercial. It's a hair product, I know. That's all I got. (laughs) So we should actually work on teaching them how to teach, uh, which then they will go out and spread the word. Right. So what do we do on shift to help people teach? So I feel like we don't help them much, uh, that we are very... We model. We model. We model teaching, but we love teaching because that's why we're doing it. Uh, And we love it so much we happily step in if they are uh, maybe stumbling when they're teaching a medical student or a junior. Uh, We want to come in and and just take it over. You mean mean like I do with procedures? That might have been a little stab, yeah. (laughs) Well, come on. I I do enjoy my procedures. I do enjoy my teaching. And if I have the chance to do it, uh, I got to be honest. You took took a knee tap. I I took a knee tap from an intern. I did. I took a knee tap from an intern, and it went beautifully. And you get that fluid out, and it was greater than 100,000 cells, and life was good. And you flexed and walked out of the room, and he had to clean it up. Pretty much. So how do we get comfortable with encouraging those residents to teach more and how do we show them how to do it better outside of modeling our love for teaching? So I think that, that you mentioned a bunch of stuff. When, when you're working with a resident, there are always people to teach. And if you take on the primary teacher role, then you're kind of hogging it. Just deciding one day that when it comes time to teaching the medical student, uh, when it comes time to teaching another resident, when it comes time to teaching nurses or the patients, that instead of just doing it, let's have the resident do the teaching and we take a secondary role of critiquing or encouraging their behavior. Sure. I, I like this. It fits nicely into sort of an apprenticeship model. People come in as PGY1s and then we have what? These entrustable professional activities we call them now. And over time, they take over more and more of them. And they should be taking over more and more of the teaching because they are dual. They are teacher and student. We are all teacher and student at the same time. And, and I really do believe that teaching is a skill that you get better at and more comfortable with the more you do it. So when someone is teaching uh, and they are teaching on a topic, you can step in and offer additional uh, information or guidance about the disease, but you could also give feedback on the teaching. Right. I think we don't do that enough. Why not? So when it comes to death notification, I hate getting the residents to do that because I feel that that is an attending responsibility. And until a resident came along and yelled at me and said, how am I going to learn to do it? Unless you let me do it. Yeah, I, I, I feel you on that one. That's sort of a 
this is why they pay me the big bucks. Let me go in there. Uh, but uh, that's why they're going to pay you the big bucks. So you better get in there. So, so I think that, that making sure that the resident gets a chance to teach is, is a great way to sort of change the flow during a shift. The other piece of it that might work really well is if there isn't another resident or a medical student to teach, instead of doing a Socratic case presentation on someone who came in with shortness of breath, you simply look at the resident and say, teach me about congestive heart failure, because that will directly be what the case is about. Sure. That's a Feynman. If you can explain it simply, then you really understand it. So you're getting an idea of their understanding which is, I think, why we would do that. But also you could critique how they chose to teach you. Uh, and that's kind of a little uh, peek behind the curtain. I, I think that when somebody tries to teach a topic, even the choices of what they choose to teach you about show you a lot about their thought processes. Sure. And that's, that's actually the same thing uh, that we do for every diagnosis, right? Uh, talk out loud. Uh, show me your work. Uh, you're actually now dissecting what, what was your thought process behind uh, this teaching choice, let's say. It also is nice to flatten the hierarchy, right? If everyone is a teacher and everyone is a learner, then everyone is sort of taking turns and, and throwing their hat in the ring. I like that. The Another big thing, as the my residents are graduating, is all these residents go out in the world, and when I ask about, are you going to teach? Are you excited for that sort of thing? The answer I get is to self-derogatory. It's, I am not worthy. It's, I am the learner. I am not ready to teach. And that continues, right? I'm only a year out, two years out. I'm junior faculty. How can I go and teach people who are my peers or my new residents? They're so close to me. Uh, and the reality is they, they all can do it. I have had some medical students walk through the door and teach me from the beginning. I love people who feel comfortable saying, I know this, and it can be a fact. It can be an entire topic. It can be anything. And if they say, I, I know this, I had a patient with this, and I am going to teach you it, uh, that should start at an incredibly early age in medicine. It should start as you're a medical student, and you should just become more confident as you move through. So as you graduate into attendinghood, it's the most natural thing in the world to look around and realize, wait, there isn't anybody else here to teach the topic. I should do it. So I love the cases because then uh, they're giving you the, I had this case. I don't have time to see to, to see every case for another 30 years before I learn stuff. So I need you to tell me my, the case. And then you get to tell me this is how I learned what I learned, which is, I think, a really nice peek behind the curtain. Another thing that we don't do as often, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I felt like a rock star because I just, I just popped in with the, the answer, you know, like the, the golden briefcase at the right moment. Uh, and everybody looks around like, my God, uh, that guy's just amazing. And I bask in it and flex and leave. Instead of saying, I looked this up yesterday because we had this question and that is why it is fresh in my mind. Uh, and I really should pull back that curtain. So, so this is one of the times where I think our ego gets us in trouble. So I, I think that as a junior attending, certainly you definitely feel like uh, they're still judging me. I'm not sure I'm smart enough. Therefore, I need to project that I'm even smarter than I am. Uh, what I've learned about residents is once they've decided you are competent, then they will overexpand well beyond reality what they think you know. Right. So once, once credibility is there, now I will actually uh, listen to your opinion. Uh, your opinion must be valid on everything. And 
But I, I think you're right. There's a sort of an imposter syndrome of the teacher uh, that I, I'm not worthy. And really, everyone has something to teach, and everyone is both a teacher and a learner. It's not about you in this case. It's not about you as the teacher maintaining your super status. It is, it is time to make sure that the residents hear and see that, that everybody needs to learn. Uh, so humility, right? This job keeps us humble. Uh, the, between the diseases and the patients and the consultants, uh, man, there's not a day that I don't go home feeling stupid about something. So I just want to say today, congratulations to our grads as they move on. And I hope you go out there and teach. Okay, that brings us to the article of the day. What is the article of the day? So the article of the day is Why Medical Educators May Be Failing at Feedback. It's by Robert Bingyu. It was in JAMA in 2009. Is it by Bing and you or Bingyu? Bingyu. Bingyu. Bingyu, Tom. Uh, this article is actually uh, something uh, that talks about how uh, feedback is very teacher-centered. So this is, again, it's, it's about us, apparently. We were talking about teaching and using feedback to encourage people to teach. And when we were having that discussion a little earlier, it came to our realization that most time that someone gets called into the office for feedback, it's almost always felt like, oh my God, I'm going to get yelled at. And that is not what this article says. And so I was surprised to see that they thought that the feedback tended to skew either neutral or positive. Since that's not really, I feel, what learners report. But, it, uh, but as, a, as someone who gives feedback, let's be honest. It is always nicer to tell people the nice stuff than to hit them with what's wrong with them. Sure. And again, we're back to it's not about you because it feels uncomfortable to give that negative feedback. I do think that there is overlooked advantage to giving constructive, positive feedback. I feel like milestones are set up to show you where the weak parts are and go there. And people who are doing fine or excelling get no attention to those areas. So we have a resident who's actually doing fine and in some areas great, uh, who because he didn't get a, a long sort of sit down evaluation. He had nothing to yell at him about. So he felt unloved. Uh, <laughs> so now he's sad that he's not doing well enough, even though uh, we didn't spend as much time because he's the quote, no problem resident. Right. So we all hugged him and everything moved on. As a coach, let's, let's put it in the sports language. A coach doesn't necessarily work on every weakness of their player. Sometimes they say, it will take three years and a lot of work to get this backhand where it needs to be. But if we make your forehand 2% better, you will demolish everyone. There are unforeseen advantages to having expertise in any area. So if you have a resident who needs to work a little bit here, but is really good at something else and becomes the, the expert EKG guy, I guarantee you being the expert EKG guy will make him suddenly better at toxicology, rhythms, resuscitation. Uh, there's going to be a whole skew of things uh, that are advantages. Success breeds success. And people like to work on what they are good at. So that is an advantage. So going back to this article, they started to talk about the three potential reasons that you might be failing at feedback. And the first one on their list was poor ability of learners for self-assessment. So that's a huge one. And I always think of that picture where uh, Homer Simpson's looking in the mirror and this like muscular chiseled full head of hair homers looking back at him. Uh, sometimes you just got a homer. I do think that it is so important when you're giving feedback to, to get the learner to 
describe what they see before you tell them what you see. I, I really like it when uh, they have already thought about the process and, and committed to what they believe is going on. So just ask them to begin with. This is the ask, tell, ask model of feedback that some people talked about. How did it go? What did you think? Uh, what, was, what was hard? What went well? What went not well? Tell me. Because I think if you, if you give feedback after that, they're much more open to feedback, both positive and negative, because you can reflect exactly on what they've said. And I think it works actually better than we think, especially if we are feeling a little uncomfortable delivering something that we perceive as negative. Often the door is opened. And I, I think for medical students especially, their self-assessment is wildly harsher than mine. The second reason that they say your feedback may be failing is overpowering influence of emotions. You're, you tell somebody that uh, there's a problem with something and they're uh, defensive and angry and all of those things. And if you ask them, are you defensive and angry, they say no. Uh, but if the ship has sailed, it's that affective response they talk about. And that, I think, has become almost the normal expectation. No one says, uh, hey, go to the PD's office after your shift and thinks, yay, cookies. I have cookies. Well, you need to feed them more cookies because they're still afraid. <laughs> they are. So I think that part of how you need to deal with the emotional side of this is, is acknowledge that there is an emotional side of it. Give people time uh, outside of their denial and anger to move on in their Kubler-Ross uh, understanding of the feedback. Uh, but but don't deliver it while they're crying. Just a little past that stage, right? And uh, and some of it is is how you deliver it, how often, how regular, how expected it is. So it becomes less of a put the shields up moment. And the more that you give them random positive feedback, the easier it is to give them any feedback. Random constructive, whether positive or negative feedback, is going to go smoother the more you give it. Uh, and then the last thing on the list is about metacognition. Metacognition. It, it definitely sounds like I should be crawling through a Jeffrey's tube uh, when you start talking about metacognition. I thought it was when the radiation gets you and then the, the wings spread out of your back. Isn't Ooh, that? Ooh, I could be an X-Man. That's great. I always wanted to. Come on. So that's about how they think about their process. You're trying to give them some kind of constructive advice, which means you're trying to get in their head and figure out uh, where they went wrong, maybe. I like the way you've always put this, which is uh, it's basically showing your math. We probably, uh, when we ask a question, accept an answer too readily instead of saying, okay, how did you get to that answer? Absolutely. Show your work, right? This is the, uh, the valuing process over outcome. We both want to admit the patient. I want to do it because he has chest pain to both shoulders, which scares me. You want to do it because uh, he's 70 and all 70-year-olds get admitted. And I'm going to have an issue. So one of the uh, failures that I have found in teaching is if somebody does something simply because it's the pattern of what they think they should do, anytime there's a slight alteration, they're lost. Whereas if they understand why they're doing something, slight changes in the pattern uh, are no problem at all. Absolutely. And you've talked about this in, in terms of how uh, new uh, interns will imprint on a way things are done and, and get sort of the pattern recognition uh, without fully understanding the nuances when the same clinician would do something different in a different situation. They just repeat the same pattern. Uh, it's the difference between being a cook, I know how to follow the recipe, and a chef, I know why this is in the recipe. The three points of this article, make sure that people do a self-assessment, be aware of the emotional reactions, 
and have your learners show their work. Excellent. Again, this article was Why Medical Educators May Be Failing at Feedback by Robert Bing. You, JAMA 2009. So, Pick, today, what's our that's not a thing? The idea that a gray-haired doctor is a great doctor is not a thing. True. I I certainly have met bad doctors of all ages. Potentially, a gray-haired doctor is a negative thing, right? Uh, You trust them because they have gray hair, but that does not mean they're a good doctor at all. And it's very hard for the patient to know that. It's kind of a black box in there. I agree. I certainly think that just because you've been a doctor for a long period of time doesn't make you a great doctor. It makes you, can make you better at some things, but in some ways it might make you worse. So uh, we talk about experience and how it's necessary for residents to get all sorts of experience, but I think we leave out the bit where experience does not equal expertise necessarily. So one of the ways that I think that, that this fails us is that if you learn a way to do something and you become very comfortable with it, You sort of keep doing it, and as long as you continue to be successful, you don't necessarily go back and re-examine your choices. Gotcha. So you become successful by succeeding at doing something a certain way, which actually cements that uh, permanently, and then the world changes and moves on, and you haven't actually cracked uh, open a textbook because you have gray hair, so you use textbooks uh, to notice. I, I that do have, have textbooks. You're right. One example that I can think of, I learned to put in central lines through the anatomy. I was exceptionally good at it. I could throw in femoral lines without a pulse. It was great. Ultrasound came along and, and you know who took a few years to pick up an ultrasound and say, yeah, even though I'm really good at this, that's better. So that would be you. And for the record, uh, we people of the old school prefer the term classically trained to blind lines. Blind <laughs> lines sounds like torture. But uh, yes, ultrasound is better. And yes, I now am worse at most ultrasound applications than my residents, which is great. Yeah, the residents have picked this up and are better. But I've learned to be enough of an ultrasounder so that my central lines don't suffer. So gray hair means nothing. What means something? Is there really no way to know? Is this, is this basically like trust is a proxy for uh, knowledge and outcome? So, so maybe. We, we know from the studies that people get sued for their bedside manner, not for whether they're right or wrong. 100%. Uh, if you screwed up but were nice, you didn't get sued. If you weren't nice and didn't screw up, you still got sued. Right. So, so we can't use that as the surrogate marker. I have a belief, and I don't know if it's true or not, I believe that if people stay humble uh, and continue to look stuff up, even when they think they know the answer, they're not going to fall as far behind. Passes the test of inversion. Uh, What is the greatest danger to having a short career and not being a great doctor? Uh, That's the sin of God, the hubris, the I am God's gift, I know what I'm doing, I'm right, and I refuse to entertain the idea that it might be wrong. Uh, That's the end. In this case, we're saying being older doesn't help. Getting locked into your ways just because they've always been successful doesn't really help. Uh, Humble is is a good doctor? Humble is a good doctor. Uh, Humility is uh, probably the thing that comes up over and over, uh, no matter if you're talking about patient-like ability or growth mindset or ability to learn. uh, Humble. So you're a patient. How do you determine if the doc in front of you is good? If the doc says, I think I'll have to look that up, if the doc says, 
I'm not the expert on that. Let me ask someone. If the doc says things that make you go, uh, uh-oh, I'm not seeing the world's expert, that might indicate that they're actually good. Right, but I think that, that it is a little difficult for a patient who's just met you in the emergency department to take that as their rubric. And I don't think that for most people that balance is easy. So what I would say is that it is comforting for the physician to be confident. Uh, it is the kiss of death for the physician to be certain. I like that. So going back to what our original hypothesis was, age does not necessarily equal skill in medicine, and that's our, that's not a thing. Not a thing. Thanks. So Pick, what are you going to try today? I'm going to ask someone to teach me something, and it will give me insight into how well they understand it, and I'm going to give them feedback on how to teach it better. I like it. I think I'm going to shut the hell up. I think that what I need to do is encourage whatever resident I'm working with tomorrow to teach, to teach the medical student, to teach the nurses. And instead of jumping in and helping or taking over, I need to listen and give them feedback on their teaching. So this is great because if I say, Tom, shut the hell up and listen, you get nothing. But if you come to that conclusion on your own, a little self-assessment, you're going to take directive action. Uh, that is that is definitely true. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get